Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say It Loud Podcast Network, where black and brown voices truly matter. Just a thought, just a thought. That's my opinion. It's just a thought, just a thought. Get out your feelings. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Just a Thought with Sheree Nicole. We're having such a good time on this show. I cannot, I cannot stress enough how grateful I am for the amazing conversations I've been able to have with some amazing guests, and it doesn't stop now. My next guest is a sociologist, criminologist, and a social worker who teaches at the University of Chicago, much love to my hometown, where he studies and writes about race, democracy, and the social life of the Windy City. He has been a member at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, a fellow at the New America Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, and a visiting scholar at the University of Texas at Austin and Dartmouth College. Dude is real smart and real woke okay i have the honor and the esteemed pleasure of having him here to dive into his highly anticipated new book halfway home race punishment and the afterlife of mass incarceration without further ado ruben jonathan miller welcome to just a thought thank, with Sharina Cole. thank you so much i'm so i'm so glad to, to, to be on the show with you thank you it is my pleasure and i have to ask you straight away this pandemic has either done some good for some folks or some bad for some folks and for my creative friends out there a lot of them say that this has been a, a good time for them to kind of dive into uh their talents and tap in creatively in a way that they weren't able to because of the busyness that was life how has this pandemic impacted your writing whether good or bad uh, it's been it's been mixed some days have been really good so so the ability to just sit down and concentrate and grind I mean, you know there was um like toward the end of the the push to get the book done um which was kind of the i guess we're at the end of the pandemic was, was sort of midway through it yeah. and uh it was really useful to be able to just sit in front of the computer and, and 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 not have other things but then it's also you know you're surrounded by death <laughs> you yeah know? And, yeah and, and the city shut down and your yeah. favorite coffee shop isn't open and people you want to see you can't see and uh, so 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 on those days i mean you know we you just you just you weather the storm you get through it and you just hope for another one of those days where you can really you know get at it yeah and to your point i mean so you talk about having to be surrounded by death and also being in isolation and also with this book dealing with some very dark but yeah. necessary topics. I mean, how yeah. were you able to kind of emotionally and mentally balance yourself during the writing process? Well, for me, you know, and, and for people who 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 do this kind of work, yeah. you know, cataloging people's trauma, you know, trying to understand, you know, how how folks make it through really dark times. For me, some days I go entire days and be cool, no problem, not a thing. And then sometimes it would be the most um, innocuous thing for people who live in cities. So I might see a homeless family. I might see, you know, a kid who's 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 on the street, you know, trying to pump some gas or something like that. And that's when it would hit me. It would be wow. not necessarily related to my book, but related to like the depths of poverty in the city, you know, just just how unjust and unfair uh, things are and, and, and knowing, you know, intimately what what all that means and what it might lead or what some of that means and what some of that might lead to. Which is interesting because to me, it says you're very tapped into humanity, which I feel like a lot of this pandemic is trying to teach us um, to be just 
more empathetic towards one another and understand the frailty that is humanity. And with that said, I want to kind of dive into the book now, Halfway Home. What initially sparked you to even put this pen to paper and, and make this book happen? I'm a religious guy. You know, I, I grew up Christian. I'm, you know, I have a faith tradition. And uh, there was a scripture that moved me years ago um, that says when when I was sick and in prison, you know, the question was, did you visit me? And this is this mm. is an important passage, you know. Uh, when I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? In this scripture, in this moment, this is when God uh, is, is is making a decision about nations that, that he lets into, mm. uh, you know, ex- that he accepts, that God, however God expresses themselves for you. But in this case, he's judging nations. And, and it hinges on this question, how did you treat the least of these and and um and I re- you know we didn't have anything happening in a prison and so I wanted to at least in my in the little church I went to and and I wanted to do that and so I did and I started working and it was eye opening very important for me to to spend that time really getting to know in this case brothers I, I didn't start working with women until um you know years later when I became a professor and started working but um but you know working with brothers mostly. And, and sitting with their families, delivering death notices, mm. uh, helping them through times of sickness. Um, this, was, this was really formative for me, it was, it was powerful. Anyway, well, so while doing that work, I realized something important about the limits of my ability to help them with what I was offering. What I was offering was, you know, come to Jesus moments, you know, get your life together, you know, mm, gotcha. like love God, you know, this kind of thing. And that's beautiful and it's powerful and important, you know, however people find that sort of spiritual connection, that's very important. Um, but no matter how often I did that, I'd still see the same guys. They still go in and out, you know, and, it, it, and on some level, it, it, it occurred to me that it had very little to do with what they did, what they thought, or whether or not they were connected to some version of 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 their God. Every black person in this country, you know, like got a grandmama who. Yeah, that's true. Know, that's true. Every black person got a grandmama who's who's telling them what's what. So yeah. So you know, all these folks had had known all the same stuff I knew. You know, mm. and, and and I wanted to understand what was going on in a deeper way, and so I went to graduate school to initially to be a better chaplain. I thought I wanted to do that with my life, and. Um, and then I started asking all these questions about mass incarceration, about the flow of Black people specifically in and mm-hmm. out of jails and prisons. Uh, and, and, and I started studying it. And I, and, I, and I knew then I wanted to write that book. But the, 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 the way the book turned out, you know, as, as, as you've read, um, became even more deeply personal. So on the one hand, there was the personal connection between me and these brothers who I care yeah. about very deeply. But my brother ended up going to prison while I was writing. Mm. Um, and so, and so it went from a me, from metaphoric brothers, you know, to 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 my right. brother, you know, wow. and, and 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 I was doing research at this time, you know, going all across the country, going in jails and prisons, following people out, trying to understand what their experiences and lives were like. Uh, all while my brother was getting in trouble, my brother was 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 being arrested. My brother needed visits. My brother needed money on his books, mm. and so I decided, like, yo, there's there's a kind of closeness here um, that I can't ignore if I'm going to be honest. Uh, and I and I and I and I need to write about that. And so that's 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 how Halfway Home was born. Wow. And you mentioned research and quantitative and qualitative research. How much went into this book and how long did it take you before you got to the point where you said, hey, I have enough to put this together? It's a great question. I mean, so so my practice is 
called ethnography, which is uh, it, for your listeners uh, who who maybe um, don't don't do this kind of work, just to explain what it is. It's participant observation. So I'm very much into doing things that people do, so that I can understand from my body. Wow. Like what's what's going down? So 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 it started off three. I spent three and a half years in halfway houses in Chicago, mostly on the south and west side going to treatment, taking classes, spending time with the brothers, eating, sitting with them at smoke breaks, uh, you know, trying to understand their lives. And then when I took my first job at the University of Michigan, I, I started a new study where I started following people home because I wanted to know what home life was like. So I left, I'd leave jails and prisons with them on the day and I go home and sit with their families and get to know them. Um, uh, so that, that was that was the qualitative work. So it was many years of qualitative work. It didn't have to be, but it was. Mm-hmm. And and the quantitative work, I'd, I'd work with scholars and we'll use surveys and, and administrative records. So for example, you know, um, the Cook County Jail keeps track of how many people move in and out. We might take that data and compare it with things like poverty rates or or uh, food scarcity, something like that. So I've, I've written papers like that for sure, but um, the bulk of this research is qualitative research um, that was conducted over about a decade. Wow. Um, it, it wasn't that it had to take a decade to write the book. It's just that by the time I started writing earnestly and uh, by the time I finished, um, the last parts of the book follow activists. And uh, I was at that moment in my career following people who were trying to change the laws and policies that I think, um, you know, uh, are detrimental to their lives uh, across the country. Uh, and, 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 and that just it just felt like the right place to, to end, you know, so so um, I wasn't writing for 10 years. I was researching for 10 years and I was writing for about a, about two years, two and a half years. Um, and in these, and they were separate studies, but but um, I, I hope it doesn't read like separate studies. I hope it reads like one thing. Nah, you know? it feels very succinct. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And you mentioned about spending time in the halfway house for houses for three years and walking with people to their homes and things of that nature. And, I, and I'm thinking in my mind, innately, as a Black person in America, I'm not necessarily the most trusting right out the gate and then we factor in trauma we factor in brokenness and things of that nature we factor in poverty how did you get people to feel safe enough with you to have these engagements to have these encounters to be able to do that type of that type of love work really is what i call it Mm -hmm. i appreciate that very much i I, you know there's a there's um you know how you've got some friends that are your friends yeah you know, your friends, like you got, you got people, you know, and then you got friends Yeah. and your friends know you and your friends know how to listen and they know how to share, you know? And, um, I think you learn how to do that with people by spending time with people over time. Yeah. And so over years I've, I've spent years with folks who are struggling, you know, and, uh, and, and I've struggled, you know, I was, I was born on the South side. Like, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not, I, I'm not supposed to be at the university of Chicago. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. that's not, it's not supposed to happen like that. Like that, that, this doesn't, this isn't a typical story. And it's not because I'm some bootstrap dude who's, 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 you know, 
I'm not. I'm also not fishing for compliments. So I'm trying to be very careful. No, absolutely. I no, but, I got but you. But you know what I'm saying? It's like it's yeah. like I'm not like this isn't this isn't a typical story. Like you know, yeah. I was born black and poor. You were supposed to be in your own book. You were. I was supposed to be in my own book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was supposed to be one of them brothers, and uh, and uh, and I am one of them brothers, right? Like, like I am. I've just, I've, I've been diverted a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been exposed to some opportunities. Anyway, well, you learn, you learn how to walk with people, um, as as you walk with them, as you, as you spend time with them. And I think that the most important thing is really. I mean, it's, it's what you're doing in this interview. It's like it's like listening, like like paying attention, like like you're you're waiting on my cues. You know what I mean? And I'm waiting on yours. It's what makes a good conversation. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and that and that builds that builds rapport, builds trust. Yeah. And then also like keeping the stories, like like holding them precious. So the people in the book have read the book, you know, oh, great. and they know that um, I'm gonna be honest. It's not a production, you know, like like mm-hmm. like their people's hard times show up in this yeah. book, but their joys do too. I hold their stories precious. They so so they they learn over time to trust me with their stories. And then they tell other people, like, oh no, Ruben's cool. You know, I don't yeah. F with everybody, but I F with Ruben. That's what the brothers say. I value that very much. Yeah. And that's just so beautifully stated. I cannot get over this word in your book. And it comes up quite a bit, and it's even part of the title, afterlife. And yeah. the connotation for me naturally is to go to hell. I just go there with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, obviously afterlife could be, could be heaven as well, or whatever you mm-hmm. believe religiously holding ground for people, whatever. But for me, I just automatically go there. Was there intention behind the use of that word in particular in the title and in the book? And, and if so, could you explain that? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's absolutely, that was, that was 100% <laughs> intentional. Uh, and it's a part of how I, try to relay what I think we could talk about is the lingering effects of incarceration. So I take this from a, there's a scholar named Sadia Hartman, whose work I really respect, who writes about what she calls the afterlife of slavery. Hmm. And, and, and what's brilliant about that work is that slavery continues on in a form you can recognize uh, in the lives, she says, of Black people. Mm-hmm in both their pains and also their moments of joy. You can see it even in, you know, these, these joyful, pleasurable moments. Um, and I think that's interesting and powerful and really moved me quite a bit. So I was wondering, yo, like, okay, so then what's the afterlife of, of incarceration? And if slavery has an afterlife, um, what's the afterlife of incarceration? And, and for me, the afterlife of incarceration are the lingering effects of incarceration, the way the prison follows you. So, so it stays with you just like, one's deeds, let's say, follow them into the afterlife. Uh, this, you know, it, under a certain set of beliefs and you wind up in one place or another. And there's a whole universe of things for you to do in those places. You know, you're in the good place or the, or the bad place. Right? <laughs> and it, it, but there, there's a whole universe. There's people to, to interact with, there's things to do. There's, there's a world, it's an entire social world that follows from, is determined by um, mm. one's time in jail or prison. It's a hidden social world and their rules and their laws and stuff like that. But the other part of the afterlife is, is, is what the afterlife does um, sort of philosophically, kind of conceptually. To have a place in the afterlife, like it's to be a part of a cosmic order. You know what I mean? It's like it's like to be something bigger than the flesh and blood itself. It's, it's yeah. outside of the flesh and blood. It's something that's supposed to be much more permanent. And it's to, it's, it's to locate the self 
within something much more universal, much more broader than the material world. It locates you within something much bigger than you. And then at the same time, it individualizes. So, so mm. in a Christian tradition, you get to the afterlife based on your deeds. Mm -hmm. It's you, you know, and, and, and I think that's wrong. I don't, I don't think that's right. I, not, not, not Christianity is wrong or right. It's just that um, I don't think people get to where they are because of their deeds, but I think they're blamed for their deeds. And so they're mm -hmm. individualized in that way. So when we look at somebody with a criminal record, we think they get, they're getting what they deserve. So it makes sense to us that they can't get a job because after all, you broke the law. It makes sense to us if you live in, you know, um, you know, one of several states that you can't vote or in any state in the union that you can't sit on a jury. These are the consequences of the things that you did. Like this, this, this is the thinking. So, so it's, it's, it's hyper individualized. And, and uh, I think that's a kind of violence that we haven't really reckoned well with. Yeah. Wow. It almost hit me like guilty. Oh man. <laughs> because we <laughs> all, all do it. We all, we all pass that, that level of judgment, whether we consciously do it or subconsciously, it might be in the way that we look at a person who has gone mm -hmm. through that experience and look at their experience. And mm -hmm. we might pass judgment in that moment, even if, even if something never crosses our, like leaves our lips to say. So I think that's such a poignant um, statement that you just made in that regard. Really, Sherry, really it's, it's so interesting that we do that though, too, because so many of us have been arrested and incarcerated. Mm. I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you, or if have you, family you, members, let me tell you something. I haven't, but I know I have family members that have. Family, <laughs> so, so the Friends. stats say, well, well the, stat, the stats say two thirds of black people, the stats say half of white people in this country mm. have a loved one who's been to jail or prison. That's a loved one. That's not, that's not, that's not distant cousin. That's like cousin. That's like friend. That's, home, that's somebody yeah. you kick it with. You know, one in eight white women in this country, white women, one in eight white women uh, has a loved one that's currently in jail or prison. That is right. There are a million white people in prison right now. Like, but, but, but this is how racism works. Racism works in such a way that, that, that jails or prisons are for poor black people who've made terrible mistakes and are bad people. Mm -hmm. and, and that racism works in our minds in the minds of black people, I'm black. Like, I don't, I don't know if this is like video or audio, but like, like, I, like I'm black, you know what I mean? And so it, it, it works the same in my mind as it does in the judge's mind. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who's, who's overwhelmingly gonna be white from, from a neighborhood, not like mm -hmm. the neighborhoods that I grew up in, who's not gonna understand me when I stand in front of them. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that 38% of white men, 38% will be arrested by the time they turn 23 for something wow. other than a traffic violation. So it's not even petty. Well, those are stats we don't hear much about, but I hear about the one in the one in four all the time. Absolutely. As it relates to black men, I Absolutely. hear that all the time. So that's Absolutely. an interesting narrative. Well, well, so 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 this this question, like what we've done, and, and this is this is some of what I hope the book does. Like I hope the book helps us understand um, no matter what the person did, the, the the system that we've made is killing us. It's breaking our relationships. It's getting in between us. It's preventing us from loving one another. It's preventing us from being our full selves as human beings. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. Um, it's, oh man, that really stuck with me. Let me gather myself for a second. <laughs> um, to, this, to the points that we've been making, one of the things that this book deals with, and, and you talk about it early on, you kind of set the stage, is, is this myth that, quote, one can serve a debt 
and return to life as a full-fledged member of society. You say that's a myth. So with that said, with what we've already said in this conversation and based on your own personal experience and dealing with people who have been incarcerated and, and are, have struggled on and off, um, what does this experience reduce people to that go through it? Yeah, oh, that's such a powerful question. I mean, so I make an argument in the book that we have to think um, at the level of citizenship. What I'm suggesting is that what citizenship is at the end of the day is about belonging. And it's about belonging to what we would say, what we would call a political community, but that just simply means a human community where resources and things are distributed, where, where, where there's power and their power relations. And so I've made the argument that what we've done is we've created an alternate kind of citizenship for people who've been convicted of crimes. It's an alternate legal reality. One of the drivers is the law itself. So there, mm-hmm. there are 45,000 laws, policies, and administrative sanctions that target people with criminal records. And what they do is they prevent people from getting whole categories of jobs. There are thousands of kinds of jobs that once you've been convicted of a crime, uh, you need not apply. There are thousands of housing restrictions uh, so that once you have a felony record, especially, that's it. It, it makes it almost <laughs> impossible to rent an apartment. You know, and I, I'm a homeowner, I own a building, you know, and I, I think about this all the time. Like, who should we rent to and under what circumstances? What do I need to do to keep us safe? And that therein lies the problem. Mm. It's not that safety is itself a problem. People need to be safe. And Black people, people from Black communities, um, suffer kinds of violence that people from other communities aren't exposed to in the same way. It's, it's just a fact of life. People harm each other. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's what happens. And all of us should be free from violence and free from harm, I think. You know, just my yeah. own ethical position is such that I believe that people should be able to live free from violence. The questions that we ask in law and policy are questions of safety. What do I do to make sure that this person doesn't harm me again? When I could be, perhaps should be asking questions of human thriving. Mm. What would happen if my framework changed? If I if I said, yo, like what not what do I need to keep me safe from this person, but what does this person who hurt me need to not hurt anyone else? What does this person who stole, you know, the life savings of that old lady? It's a terrible crime. It's an awful crime. What does that person need? so they can thrive, so they can no longer steal. What does the person who did the egregious harm, the worst harms we can think of, what do they need so that they can take a place in society? And the reason for this is simple. 95% of all people who go to prison come home. <laughs> and if, 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 if we don't make a place for them, then the world that we create will, not, will be no less safe will be more dangerous than it was uh, when wow. they went in because they will be excluded from everything. The only route to engage are routes of things that we call crimes. So anyway, it's, it's, it's like there's a self-interest argument, but there's also an ethical argument. You know, like what kind of world do you want? Do you want the kind of world where we create a pariah class and we just shut them off and that's who we are and that's what we do? I, I don't think that's the world most of us imagine um, ourselves to want to be a part of. Absolutely. And as you're talking, 
I'm thinking about how, you know, we talk a lot about systematic racism and things like that, but we don't necessarily scratch the surface of what you're talking about. When we think about empathy, when we think about, you know, the way that our own selfishness and lack of vision when it comes to the humanity of people brushes right up against that and makes this an even bigger barrier for people who are coming out of, out of prison. And even as you're talking, I'm like, man, I didn't think of it that way, but that's so true. And grace is free, but sometimes it's very difficult for us to conceptualize that in a way and then actually do it outside of our convenience. Cause we'll show grace to somebody we love. We'll show grace to a friend, a family member, but somebody we think did something wrong. Once that judgment's passed and oftentimes the grace evades them altogether. So thank you for stating that the way you did. Cause that's, that's some powerful stuff. I think that's a powerful, you know, kind of rephrasing of it too. Like the idea of grace, what I come to in the book is to ask readers to think about what it might mean to embrace an ethic of hospitality. What might happen if we did that? And I, I try not to be super prescriptive. The book is not me trying to tell you how to think. Or like, I don't, no, I don't, I'm not into that. It doesn't feel that way at all. I but you do lay it. it out there because you invite, it's not telling us how to think, it's an invitation to think or see something in a different way, which I appreciate. And I think that's what literature should do. So I think you did a great job with that personally. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to, I want to dive into the pages a little bit. And uh, oh, yeah. we, we still, yeah, we got to yeah. do that. <laughs> like, man, it's fine. I, I, sometimes I get lost in, in the, in the good conversation. So I appreciate, I appreciate your feedback. Um, there's a chapter in your book that's called guilt, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool chapter, uh, really resonated with me. And in the chapter you say, quote, this too is the afterlife, there's that word again, of slavery, which is to say it is the afterlife of mass incarceration. It is the arrest and poverty and premature death that follow the sons of Ham. It's the separation from our homes and families. It is the precious lives we live with too few people to come to our aid. It's the profound sense of loneliness and the embarrassment and guilt that comes with knowing you're alone. Can you please speak to that connection between incarceration, loneliness, and guilt? Mm -hmm. There was an, uh, an an article in the New York Times that was mind blowing, or should have been, I think, um, for many many people. It was called "The Missing," and um, what and it focused on men. But it, you know, mass incarceration isn't just a problem for men. But but just to, just to to stick with men for a high second, mm -hmm. it talked about the 1.5 million black men who are missing from their communities because of incarceration or death. And so our livelihood, the livelihood of black men, you know, depending on the neighborhood you live in, public health has told us, like the public health research has told us, you know, there can be as much as a 30 year gap in the livelihood between uh, poor black men from certain, you know, particularly violent neighborhoods and, 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 and middle-class white men wow. who live in the same city, 30 year life gap, life expectancy gap. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty wild, um, but this catalog, what it meant for the men to be pulled from the community for death or incarceration. It meant a lot of things. On the one hand, for heterosexual couples, this means that the, the, the dating market is severely constrained. Yeah. So straight black women uh, have fewer men to pick from. They're gone, they're arrested, they're sent away. Um, what does it mean for a man to be snatched uh, from his family. So let's say, let's say, let, make them a couple, you know, make it, a, make it a couple with some kids. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for the child? Who does the child talk to? How do they explain it? For me and my family, before it was incarceration, it was group homes. My big brothers, two of them in that chapter, 
were sent to live in group homes because we were we grew up in foster care. So, so once you're marked by the legal system, mm. there are all these workarounds that that wouldn't be allowed in normal families that are allowed in yours. And wow. so my brothers got in trouble, the kind of trouble that kids get in. They smoke weed, they had sex, they they they, they you know messed around in the stairways, you know, they did all these things. And the building manager could go to my grandmother and say, they leave or you do. In the wait, same wait, way, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what? They leave or you do. So my brothers were sent to 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 group homes. They were sent to group homes because they were we were wards of the court. And that's the move for kids with behavioral problems is to, is to lock them up, to send them away to a kind of jail. It, yeah, it, it gets deep. Um, <laughs> so, so that was my experience. And when that happened, when I'm growing up in Chicago on the low end, well, what's going to happen? I'm going to get in fights. Yeah. <laughs> well, well where, are my, where are my big brothers? We usually fight, fight together. It was three of us. Now it's one of me. The youngest one of me, my experience of that was, what does it mean to be in that situation, to be, to be, to, to, to actually be, to actually be alone? So when somebody bigger comes, when, 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 when several people come and, and you're a boy and, and, and the things that, you know, you grew up poor and black in a, in a poor neighborhood, you know, you learn how to scrap. It's, it's, it's yeah. what you do. This is why I say I'm not supposed to be at the University of Chicago, you know what I mean? But the things you learn how to do, you, you learn yeah. how to scrap. It's, it's, but that's it's, what brought you to UFC, what you just said, having absolutely. to having to persist and push through and learn how to scrap and figure it out, sadly, on your own in many instances. But that got you yards ahead of other people who were privileged and didn't get the opportunities to figure it out. I feel fortunate. I appreciate that very much. I feel fortunate in many ways. But this point about loneliness, this is the point. Jails, prisons, group homes, job corps, uh, detention by any other means snatches people from their family units. And what does that do to the family unit? And now how do you feel? You're that little boy. You're that little girl. You're that wife or husband making that five-hour drive just to be turned around because your dress is too short. Let's say it's a, a GLBTQ couple. You're that partner, you know, navigating a super hostile environment. I mean, your sexuality is made illegal in prison if you're gay, uh, lesbian. If you act on it, you go into solitary confinement. So whatever your expression of self is, it is criminalized. And what does it mean to have that expression of self criminalized? And what does it mean to be the person who's now effectively by themselves? It comes with a sense of loneliness, but also, you know, uh, for many of us who've experienced something like this, who love people who are connected to the criminal justice system or any of these systems that pull them out of our lives, um, it comes with a sense of guilt, feeling like, oh man, I could have done something different. But this is all the lie too, right? Like this is the lie too, right? The idea that the super or the the supervisor, the janitor can come and knock on my door and make a decision about who's going to be in my house Hmm. because we know we can be evicted has, is the problem. The fact that the power lies in the hand of the janitor and a police officer about how my family formation looks is the problem. It's not that um, my brothers were smoking weed, kids smoke weed. That's what they do. How do we respond to kids who smoke? You, you see, you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so, and so, so we can get trapped in this, in this lie. We can get trapped in this lie. And, and, and what I'm trying to do is help us, help us out of it. So that guilt chapter is to help us see how guilt is manufactured.
how mm-hmm. it's fake and how guilt is presumed for some of us before we ever step into a court. Guilt is presumed when you're a little baby. Yeah. Um, l- last point on this, there have been social psychological experiments that have shown that Black boys specifically, when, when assessed by folks, are thought to be older and more guilty. Four years older on average. This is why when wow. Tamir Rice was murdered, the police the cop officer didn't even called get out him. Of the car. He didn't even get out of the car, Ruben. He shot him in two seconds. Two seconds. The police officers, you know what they called him on national television? The male. This is how and why that happens. It's the presumption of guilt that circulates around us, and it is a lie. We are not guilty. We are human. We are not guilty. Wow. Wow. I'm going to stay, stay in the book. Uh, Power was another cool chapter. And <laughs> you talked about, about Ronald a lot in, in Power. I thought that was pretty cool. And there was a statement that kind of stuck out to me that you said he said. And it was, if you don't change hearts and minds with the stroke of a pen, when ah. someone new comes into power, they can wipe away all your progress. And we're thinking about sy- systemic racism and knowing that's a real factor. Also knowing the political ping pong that's happening, that has been happening for decades in this country. In your estimation, what are some actionable items that you think are necessary for genuine prison reform and preventative prison entry? Because you don't have to yeah. go there. You know, let, let's yeah. stop it before it even starts. Can I give you a practical one and a, yes, and, absolutely. A, and a more abstract one? Absolutely. Okay, I'll start with the practical. You know, I think expungement, there's a lot of action right now around expungement and we need it. So, you know, if we can, expungement is when you... Uh, seal a record. Um, And I think this can work on a number of levels. I think if we automatically expunge the records of children, Mm. by the time they get in front of a judge as an adult, the judge is not looking at the 14 arrests they got for smoking weed, for hopping a turnstile, for, you know, or whatever, for murder. It doesn't matter. You know, they were babies. And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying murder doesn't matter. Murder absolutely matters. But but the, the legal system has decided that they're different tracks of justice for children and for adults. So if that's the case, keeping those tracks separate is very important because what ends up happening is by the time that child comes to a judge, so the child has progressed, the child's now an armed robber. The judge looks at the child's record and says, you're a repeat offender. I'm going to give you a quote, sentence enhancement. Now, because of that armed robbery that you got picked up on, which would have been a five-year sentence, you're going to get 30 years. And this is not an exaggeration. I I was just literally watching the trial of the brother of a woman who I spent time with, uh, who did seven years on that, who has another brother who's doing a life sentence for an armed robbery. Life sentence for an armed robbery because of sentence enhancement. It's it's not actually like Mm. 30 years, but it might as well be life. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so, 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 so on a very practical level, Expunging the records of juveniles will um, decrease the kinds of sentences that people get as adults, and in fact, probably do away with many of the sentences uh, that, that that people get as an adult. And then, expunging the records of people who've been out for a year or more—let's say that you you need them to prove something—I I don't think you do, but expunging their records after a minute, figuring out when the right time is, mm-hmm. um, which requires some conversation between people who don't typically agree, will do a lot to get around these 45,000 laws and policies. If the record is sealed, the landlord doesn't see it. And the landlord doesn't need to see it. If you haven't committed a crime in three years, why does the landlord need to know, you know, that when you were 20, you smoked a joint? 
Why does the landlord need to know when you were 25, you were in a gang and got into a fight and somebody got stabbed? That's a big deal. I'm not saying it's not, um, but what does that have to do with you renting the apartment? Like, like these, these, what does that have to do with you voting? You know, these kinds of things. So that, that's the practical. I, I think thinking about these collateral consequences of criminal conviction and thinking about how the record follows people um, is something that we could get, our, you know, and even people who don't agree with me, um, I, think, I think they would agree that after a minute, you know, a debt to society should be paid. So now the abstract, which is in my mind, equally important. I think we have to think about the kind of world we wanna make. So I think that we should take seriously what the abolitionists who are in the, in the street right now telling us to get rid of police, what the people who are saying defund the police, which aren't always abolitionists, the people who are telling us to get rid of jails and prisons, because mm-hmm. what they're saying to us is start over. Mm-hmm. They're saying, what kind, um, let's build a world in which we don't need police. And so they're trying to think about the sort of systems that one might wanna create to mm-hmm. prevent some of this stuff on the front end. I think this is an important exercise, even if you're not an abolitionist. I think it's a very important exercise. What, what would the system look like if I didn't call the police when a child is smoking weed on the staircase? What might a justice system look like if I didn't call the police when someone was having a mental health crisis? What if I didn't send children before judges, I sent them before, then fill in the blank? Mm-hmm. You know, when people need help, our responses with punishment. And, and I don't, I don't, mm. and, and, and it is shown not to be the, the, the response that people need because yeah. it doesn't reduce the rate at which they're re-arrested. They commit crimes at the same, you see what I'm saying? Like it, it, yeah. it, does, it doesn't work. Like we've proven it doesn't work by the metrics that we've established as um, measures of a functioning justice system or something like that. Wow. <laughs> I want to, I want to move to, to COVID and mm-hmm. you know we look at how it's impacted already the prison systems and kind of looking at the the scope of what this pandemic has already done um what do you foresee in the long term if some of this stuff doesn't get cleaned up if some of the tangible steps that you even mentioned earlier don't happen in conjunction with this pandemic what are some of the long-term effects that we could possibly see five ten even 15 years down the line I think you, you'll see an intensification of what you've already seen, which are a couple of things. On the one hand, there's deep tensions. There's deep inequality, which produces deep social tensions. And so um, while the prison isn't all black, and you know, I, I opened up what like we talked earlier about like how many white folks in jails or prison, something like that. The jails and prisons are disproportionately black. Mm-hmm. You know, black people are five times more likely to be arrested and incarcerated than white people. So if you don't if you don't do something about this, the the naked injustice of the system is, will continue to produce the kind of cynicism and distrust in government that we think is only reserved for the folks who stormed the Capitol. You know, mm-hmm. we're only concerned about whether or not you trust the government if you're a white supremacist. We 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 don't care about your trust for government. You know, in fact, if we think about distrust for government you know, think about like how people are talking about the administration of COVID vaccines. We think that people don't want to take vaccines because it's a cultural thing. You know, uh, black people don't like needles or they don't like hospitals. No, it's, it's a fundamental distrust of the yes. way you've treated us. We yes. go to the hospital and you we don't come you, out. You, you know what I mean? Like, 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 yeah. you know, we, we die on the table trying to have children today, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and, 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 and you, you pretend like, like there's no real problem in the way you administer any of your social systems anyway. So, so, so on the one hand, we might see system avoidance, which we see, we might see 
we might see tensions building. We might see the, the same sort of fissures that are very clear widen. And inequality is bad for everything. It's bad for the economy. It's bad for us, for, for people who are the worst off. On the how to deal with the pandemic side of things, you have to think about the people who are worse off because those are the folks who are who are who are the most highly exposed to all the problems that that, that you created. So if you think about um, health in jails or prisons, it was already abysmal. You know, yeah. prisoners were already five to nine times more likely to contract HIV, AIDS, hepatitis C, all communicable diseases, all chronic illnesses are heightened just about inside American jails and prisons. In fact, um, there was a really interesting study that came out in 2009 that showed that um, about a third of all communicable diseases in the country had passed through an American jail or prison the year before. In the no year. way, no way. So, 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 so you can, you wow. can ignore, <laughs> you can ignore. And so, so, so what happens when COVID happens? When COVID happens, prisons become a hotspot. Of course they yeah. are. Of course they do. Of course, they're right behind nursing homes, a group that you also ignore, yeah. the, the old and often poor, you know, just put them off in a corner. Of course, the groups you ignore are the ones who, who experience the problem at the highest rate. But what you do to me and my children, you do to your own. And so, and so, and so you will never get rid of the problems that you see in this country if you don't care for the least off. Like that, yeah. that so in five years, I see things being... Uh, Worse <laughs> if we don't if we don't we don't if we don't if we don't get our act together. This is yeah. an opportunity for us to get our act together. Absolutely. And as we close, I think about just this book and page to page. And you know, you laid your heart out here, but also exposed the hearts of those who are disenfranchised, who are dismissed, um, and who need a lot of resources that they just simply either don't get currently, never got, lost, what have you. With that said. And thinking about this book, what do you want people to walk away with knowing, being more um, interested in when it comes to the heart of those who have either been formerly incarcerated or who are currently incarcerated? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I want people who read this book to walk away with a deeper understanding that people that we throw away are people. I think that if we opened American jails and prisons right now, every one of them, and let everyone out, we would still live in the kinds of what I call a supervised society. So these, these, all these rules, regulations, mm -hmm. laws, restrictions, like that would still exist. I think that's true. I think that would still exist. The question for us is what kind of society do we want? I would like for us to think about the kinds of society, the kind of society that we want. I, I want us to think about the least of these who are among us. I want us to think about them as fully human. Mm -hmm. And I want us to think about ways to build a new world that, that, that incorporates them uh, 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 in and among us. Wow. Ru Ruben, this has been a pleasure and an honor. How can people, um, before I tell them how they can get this, their hands on this book, how can people stay in contact with you on social media, website, just all the amazing work you're doing with this book and everything else that you're doing? I want to make sure people can stay connected with you. Thank you so much. I'm at Twitter at uh, Ruben J. Miller. Uh, uh, I'm on Facebook, but I'm also, but Twitter's better. And uh, I'm on Instagram, but I don't know how to use it. I'm yeah, I can tell because you have like 200 followers. I'm like, what? He's at this powerhouse of a book and like 200 followers on it. We got to help Ruben out, guys. So make sure you follow him on Instagram. DM him some tips on how to use it. 
Um, because apparently he needs a little bit of help. He's a great writer, but social media might not necessarily be his strong suit. Doesn't mean he doesn't care. It's just <laughs> it's just not his thing. <laughs> and you guys make sure you get his book, new book. This book has been has gotten amazing reviews from the New York Times, NPR. It is the real deal. It's called Halfway Home, Race Punishment and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration, wherever fine books are sold. Um, if you know somebody who's been in and, out of the, in and out of the prison system, if you're one of those people, if you want to uh, know more, this book is for everybody. So it's not a niche thing. It could be applied to all of our lives in some way, shape, or form. Ruben, job well done. And thank you so much for uh, joining me and having this great conversation on Just a Thought with Sharina Cole. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. This is Just a Thought, hosted and produced by yours truly, Sharina Cole, in association with Sharina Cole Media and the Say It Loud Podcast Network. Just a Thought is now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Radio.com. And make sure that you subscribe, share, and rate us. And also, tell a friend. You can follow the Just a Thought podcast on Instagram at Just a Thought Show and on Twitter at Just a Thought Win. That's W-I-N. You can also follow me, Sheree Nicole, on Instagram and Twitter. Same handle, Sheree underscore Nicole, S-H-A-R-I underscore N-Y-C-O-L-E. Say It Loud Podcast Network, where black and brown voices truly matter. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.